We know that many of our readers like to share their copy of the Church Times with others. That may not be possible at the moment. As an alternative, we're offering a short-term discounted subscription, just £1 a week for 10 weeks. That includes UK delivery and there's no obligation to renew. You can purchase the subscription for yourself or as a gift for someone else. You'd enjoy all of our usual subscriber benefits, the paper in the post each week, all the news at churchtimes.co.uk, access to the digital archive, the app for iPhone and iPad, and listening to this podcast. To purchase a subscription, go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash 10 hyphen weeks. Hello, I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor of the Church Times. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we're publishing each week a collection of prayers and reflections called Lift Up Your Hearts. It can be downloaded from our website. This week, Canon Rachel Mann writes about what has inspired and comforted her during a time of self-isolation. It includes art, literature, film, music, poetry and prayer. I caught up with Rachel to talk more about it. At the end of the interview, she reads two poems from her most recent collection, A Kingdom of Love. So Rachel, you you start your piece for the Church Times this week by saying that many of your parishioners have been asking how you are at the moment. Could you say a bit about how this period of sort of isolation and COVID-19 has been for you? Yes, Ed. It's been very weird in in the sense that I am absolutely used to being the, the the pastoral person, the person who's reaching out to others. But because I have these underlying health conditions and I'm on some really powerful drugs, I've been self-isolating, well, since before it, it, it became required of the government, before we went into lockdown. And it's been so touching when... Well, well, I've picked up the phone and I've started ringing round uh, the congregation and their usual question is, well, how are you? And it's, dare I say, it's unpicked me a little bit um, and reminded me of my vulnerability. I'm actually quite good with vulnerability a lot of the time because when you have something like Crohn's disease and you've lived with it, well, as I have for over 20 years... A situation like the one we find ourselves in is not the first time I've ever been housebound or quarantined. There have been times when my immune system has been so wiped out, I've been told to sit in my house and not have any contact with any other person. Or there have been times when, because of surgery, I've been out of action for up to three months. But it's strange to be well and yet so limited it's a reminder I mean of a, of that deeply beautiful but disturbing thing I think at the heart of the gospels which is that we are all in the hands of each other you know when Jesus says love your neighbor as yourself this isn't just a kind of bit of practical moral advice it's a reminder that we are formed in and through community and the, at the heart of that, ultimately, is that we are in the hands of God. We are handed over. Um, so it's been shocking, disturbing and strangely beautiful. You write in the piece that you reach for art, prayer, literature, poetry, music, film to inspire and comfort at a time like this. And you, and you um, really helpfully give some examples of, of some of those things that have been helping you at this time. Could we just talk through perhaps each of those in turn. I mean, you start with art. 
Yeah. Um, and I, the the the, uh, the work of art that I chose is uh, a piece of Rembrandt's um, Simeon in the Temple. And I encountered it in the flesh, as it were, back in, I think it was 2014. There was an exhibition at the National of Rembrandt's late works. And I knew it. Of course I knew it. I, I knew it from a postcard. You know, I knew it from seeing it on the Internet. It was the very last painting in the exhibition. And I started to weep in its presence. Now, I, I know that can sound a bit overdramatic, but this is a piece of work which shows Simeon falling apart, really, through old age, but it's also captured in this unfinished work. It was found the day after Rembrandt died. It, it was perhaps the very final piece that he was working on, and... The way in which it models that vulnerability, the the way in which the baby Jesus, the baby Christ, rests on Simeon's arms is, for me, quite shattering. But what is it about that effect that also is very comforting? Uh, well, Simeon waits so long to... to to me, the saviour, to me, the Messiah. And Rembrandt captures that sense of a life lived in extreme and extreme old age. And yet, Simeon receives this blessing. Simeon holds the saviour of the world. And I think what moves me is that sense that at a time like this, when we're all deprived of touch, and, you know, that's what actually, Ed, what I'm struggling with most of all is the fact that I have not touched another human being. I've not hugged anyone, shook anyone's hand for over a month. That, that at this time when touch is deprived, this painting captures the power of touch to heal and renew and to set free, to set Simeon free, to say... Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. He has received the peace of the world. So it is it is a a very upsetting painting in one sense because it, it, it stirs up all these emotions, but it's also so comforting because I do believe that that time of touch will return. I mean, literature. I just thought of this when you talk about, you, you see quite a lot of people saying this is the time to either read something very escapist, just to take our mind off it, or to sort of, you know, finally tackle Ulysses. Or I think Angela Tilby in her column this week talks about um, that big Rowan Williams book, you know, Christ the Heart of Creation or something. Um, and there can be a bit of guilt around, so you've got all this time, now's the time. But can you say about how literature helps you at this time? Yes, indeed. Oh my goodness! The thought thought of reading that book by Rowan. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I mean, I I hear that, and I hear what Angela's saying. And um, the truth is, is that yeah, I mean, confession time. Um, I've never completed War and Peace, and a time like this, I'm thinking, yes, this is that time for the heroic gesture. But as I say in 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 the, the 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 column or the piece I've written for the Church Times, there's something about 
reaching for a kind of comfort food in literature at this time. Um, I quote Alison Light, the academic, who says that detective fiction is the literature of convalescence. And I love detective fiction. And I love that golden age stuff and that idea that 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 literature that was written in the 20s and 30s was a kind of healing work for those traumatized generations. And I certainly have read so many of those books from that era, both the famous ones and the really obscure ones, especially when I've been poorly, lying in bed, um, getting lost in the world of Miss Marple or Peter Whimsey. And I think that really, that matters to me at this time. I've gone back to books which which take me to places that I've already known. There's a kind of rehearsal there. The big one for me, as I mentioned in my piece, is Gordy Knight by Dorothy L. Sayers. And what I have to say about that, that, that is no throwaway piece of detective fiction. This isn't like her early work, which is very puzzle-based. At the heart of it is relationship. It's the relationship between Harriet Vane and Lord Peter Whimsey, and Whimsey's been pursuing her to get married for all this time, and she keeps saying, no, 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 this would be a um, a total denial of my independence and freedom as a, as a woman. And what is so moving about that book is that, yes, there is a, there is a, a, a problem to be solved in the novel around all this criminal activity that's been happening in this single-sex uh, female college at Oxford in the late 20s, early 30s. But at the heart of it is a mutual recognition. And where we arrive at, I mean, spoiler alert, is that um, whimsy proposes for the final time and, and Harriet says, yeah, yes. Um, and the, the, the final words, I'm, I'm, I, um, I, I'm just trying to remember them precisely. Um, he says, plaquette magistra, and she says, plaquette. I mean, which is essentially, you know, does this please you, mistress? And she says it does. And it's the recognition of their equality, that there's no sense in which she's going to be giving something up, that they are both going to be giving each other more fully. And that that's comforting, um, not least because it's a reminder of the life which I think we're all called to lead with one another. As a single person who lives alone, that sense of, yes, relationship is out there waiting. Uh, I mean, a relationship between humans, but also the relationship within with God. The, we're not called into um, uh, a relationship which, which involves putting oneself down with God, that there is a sense in which we are growing more into our fullness. So, yeah, I, I, I will digest um, uh, detective fiction like bad food, you know. <laughs> um, and I, I zoomed through the, the murder of Roger Ackroyd the other day, um, uh, which I think is a terrific book by uh, Agatha Christie, of course. But for the real rich food, the, the fine wine, the, um, the, the full meal, there's nothing like Gordy Knight by Dorothy L. Sayers.
perhaps next we talk about film. What, um, what films have you found yourself drawn to at this time? Well, <laughs> I mean, in the, the um, Lift Up Your Heart piece, I mentioned Knives Out, which is um, a bit of a curved ball, I suspect, because it's such a recent film. It was only in the cinemas, the tail end of 2019, directed by Rianne Johnson, who directed one of the um, Star Wars movies. It's a, it's a very starry cast um, how can that be a, a film for now? Well, it's a reinvention of the classic uh, mystery film. It takes all of those classic elements, the, um, uh, the genius amateur detective played by Daniel Craig with a not entirely convincing Southern American accent. Uh, it has the dodgy, wealthy family, suspects are plenty, but what it does brilliantly is it takes those elements, throws them up in the air, and makes them simultaneously very funny, but actually quite a strong comment on the way in which um, class works, on the way in which power works. Um, I reached for it most recently. It only came out on, on Blu-ray and DVD uh, the other week. And I, I hit a wall, Ed, um, a couple of weeks back where I thought, I'm not sure I can keep going. I felt like I'd been in survival mode, crisis mode, trying to do the, I mean, you know, mixed me metaphors here, putting my finger in in walls just to try and stop floods and then another flood starting either at the parish level or deanery level or whatever. And I thought, I need this film, partly because it's escapist, but partly because it's smart enough to stimulate as well. And I just think, you know, a lot of the films that I love, whether they be Casablanca, um, as a classic, or um, I've just recently, don't judge me, recently been working through the Marvel Cinematic Universe, <laughs> every single film. Um, the films that I love are ones which give me some an easy takeaway. You know, something which, uh, Casablanca's case, love story, set in uh, wartime conditions, but has a smartness to it that also gets my neurons firing. And it has the greatest script ever. It just crackles with energy. And okay, Knives Out is not in that league, but, but the script simply crackles with energy whilst also deploying all these tropes where we simply feel like, oh, I, I'm watching this and I slot into this. I know how this is gonna work. And then of course, it doesn't go quite how we think it's going to work because it's, a mystery uh, film with a big twist at the end. And what about music? Is that is that a light, something of a lifeline? Uh, oh, abs absolutely. I'm in a huge thing. Um, indeed, I uh, it, it's it's on my radio or my iPod is on much of the day, and that makes it sound too much like a kind of background soundtrack but I, I'm just someone who I've, gr I, I've grown up with music I've had the, the good fortune to write about music a lot 
and it, it's part of the DNA of, of what enables me to live. Um, big thing, the, I was listening to it again this morning, um, Dame Janet Baker singing Sea Pictures, the 19, I think it's 1965 LSO recording. And Dame Janet simply breaks me. There is a tenderness in her voice, which is incredibly strong. I mean, I just, I can't think of another female voice who can model sensitivity and absolute strength in quite that way. And she'll take a song, um, off the top of my head, sort of Sea Slumber song, the, there's a lullaby as part of that suite. And it soothes, but it also, it's as bracing as the sea itself. And I, 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 she just, she breaks me and in the breaking somehow holds me. Now, it's just as a slight aside as well, because, um, you know, I'm, I'm nothing if not Catholic in my tastes. I've been listening <laughs> to an awful lot of country ballads as well. I I love country music. Um, and this is this is probably not hugely um, uh, church times friendly. You know, I'm, I need to, you know, recognise the demographic here. But, you know, one of the things about country, for all its reputation of being reactionary and sentimentalised and it's, it's music to uh, cry into your beer over, it is one of the few genres in popular music that genuinely takes God seriously and genuinely takes that need for something bigger seriously. I mean, okay, there's all the songs about trucks and standing by your man, but country's moved a, a long, long way. Um, so I've, I've, I've really enjoyed, um, spending time with not only some, some classics, but some of the, uh, the, 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 the recent, um, the Carrie Underwoods of this world. Um, you know, I I sort of, am very happy putting my hand in the air as she sings, Jesus, take the wheel. It's just so good. We'll just, we'll come on to poetry in a sec, but you also talk about prayer in your Church Times piece. At this time, do you find, um... Live, the rhythms of prayer um, different or is it challenging when you don't have the structure to your day that you're perhaps used to? Curiously, I found that I've prayed more than I had previously and that, that might feel quite embarrassing. I feel slightly embarrassed to admit that as a cleric. But what I mean is that there's been a real intentionality about it and... I suspect that's partly to do with my own need, my own sense of my my hunger for God as the deep connective tissue. But there's also been a sense of feeling called to serve what is a scattered but still beloved church community. And so what has happened is that, I mean, in addition to praying with um, uh, our curate and other clergy colleagues on a daily basis. I've also 
led morning and evening prayer um, on YouTube um, on a daily basis. Um, and I've also, I've had a sense that this prayer is somehow deeper. And it, and this isn't because, I don't think it's because, oh, I'm trying to somehow pray into the depth of need, the depth of crisis. It's that God, for me, is encountered most profoundly in, in, in vulnerability and... And in our precariousness. And I mean, it's that, that classic thing that I guess those of us who spent a fair amount of time as, you know, as Christians and hopefully growing Christians um, is that so often we think it's about us walking towards God um, when we pray. But actually it, it's allowing God to walk towards us. And. It's been one of the curious gifts, a difficult gift of this time of isolation to receive a sense of God walking towards me. And God's always doing that, but it, usually I'm, I'm trying to put obstacles in his way, you know, sort of like, oh, a, here you go, jump over that hurdle, God. Um, and And... Being disarmed, not being able to weaponize my my busyness, weaponize my ordinary practices as a way of keeping God away. You know, it's that old thing that you know that thing that Rowan always says. You know, the thing about prayer is that we we just simply need to be where God can get at us. It's a bit like sunbathing, really. And, you know, I'm not allowed really to go out. I've got a little garden that I go out for a wander round. But curiously, maybe this time of isolation is a time when, because there's nowhere else to go, God can get at us a bit more. Should we just talk about poetry, finally? Um, of course. No, no surprise that this would be um, very important to you. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, perhaps it's unsurprising that um, as someone who's really interested in 19th century poetry, I have been drawn to the work of Emily Dickinson and also Christina Rossetti, both of whom have this profound gift of speaking of God in the midst of solitude and with a kind of quiet intensity. I think Dickinson in particular is, is a genius figure at this time. Um, this is a woman who, who, as she grew older, found herself less and less engaged with a, a public life. And famously, she had no more than a handful of her poems published in her lifetime. I think she would genuinely be shocked by the way in which she is lauded now around the world. But the way in which she is unafraid of calling out false images of God, you know, she sometimes talks of God as the man of noon, this God who is at the full. But actually, she encountered in the quietness of her writing room in the middle of the night, which was when her father allowed her to simply have the house to herself. The 
the way in which she captures the extraordinary juxtapositions which solitude can make available. I mean, you know, to quote that most famous line, hope is a thing with feathers. And that sense in which she captures in her limited, narrow world, that sense of taking flight in hope. And it's spoken to me so powerfully at this time of confinement, where, oh, the longing of my heart is to get out there. I mean, yes, of course, as a priest, to get into church, to celebrate the Eucharist, to be in the company of the people of God, but actually just simply to get out there into the hills, you know, to go and go to the, to the seaside, to take flight, to breathe that air of God, to, to, to sense the breath of God in my lungs. Um, in um, Lift Up Your Hearts as well, I, I mentioned, perhaps surprisingly for some, somewhat some people, Edmund Blunden, if people know Edmund, Edmund Blunden's work, it is as a war poet, and he's probably considered several degrees below the famous people, the, the Owens, the Sassoons, the Rosenbergs, the David Joneses. But what I've really found at this time, which has, is unutterably moving, is that this was someone who was deeply traumatised by his experience at the front line in the Great War, but never lost a sense of the tenderness of nature and the tenderness of the world. And throughout all his poems, both those written before the war, during the war, and actually after the war, right up until the late 60s, when he stopped writing, there is the shadow of trauma but the signal of the beauty of creation. And I, I, we're all going through this time of trauma, whether we know that or not. It's a time of grief, and we're going to pay the price in our bodies in months and years to come. But the gift of God, I think, is to be reminded that God comes to us in precariousness and vulnerability as Jesus Christ and holds trauma in his body. The risen Christ is still the wounded Christ. The one who goes to God in the ascension is, is one who still bears the marks of crucifixion. But still we are called to be raised to new life, to beauty, to wonder. But we don't simply ignore the trauma and that's why I, I think I want to commend to people who don't know Edmund Blunden's work just take a closer look because it's deceptively simple stuff he might be writing about oh goodness me you know uh, 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 a piece of farm equipment and yet he's alert to the transcendence in that but also the violence that might be held within that too, because of his experience of violence in the war. The two things that I thought that I might read, I mean, the firstly is for this season of Easter, this season of resurrection, is a poem called The Risen Life. And it's a poem about, in one sense, resurrection, but it's also, I think, apposite at a time when 
people are negotiating vulnerability and um, there are many people in hospitals and, you know, we hope and pray that that everyone recovers um, from the effects of not only COVID-19, but many other things. And this was written in response to my own experience of being hospitalised on many occasions and discovering in the midst of my own hospitalisation uh, an encounter with risenness. So the risen life. You wake to a sting between shoulder blades as if someone's folded a crease down your back. Silence hurts, and the light unexpected, grey, not quite morning, glowing at the edges, as if electric is involved. So many people, lying down, confined, each in their own bay. Slow heave of chests, a faint scent, antiseptic perhaps, the calm. Not remembering for a second what has happened to you. Then feeling out from the inside a kind of shock. Shivering down through your forehead, teeth, neck. A fear about what might have been removed. There is a nurse. She could be a nurse. Someone who smiles. Who is not afraid of wounds. Whose eyes twinkle as she holds a finger to her mouth when you start to speak. And the second poem is the final poem in the sequence which is at the heart of my collection, A Kingdom of Love, and it's called A Kingdom of Love 3. So there have been a a number of Kingdom of Love poems. And um, contextually, it is a poem which is written in response to the experience of a priest who spends a lot of time with the dead, who spends who spends a lot of time working as uh, he spends a lot of time working with people um, who are grieving, who takes a lot of funerals, and this poem is directly a response to um, uh, another poem in which the priest has deposited, has interred some ashes in a garden of remembrance. A Kingdom of Love 3. If, in the resurrection, I shall be raised to congregation, face to face, all eyeless skulls, so much dust, ached with near-forgotten form, a finger, teeth, tongue. If so, I shall know only you. All else washed clean, virgin robes, metaphor for the begin again. If I am raised, I shall not care if you will be like unto severed hand, forgetful, free, and I the stump mourning. And if on that day poetry shall be done with its need of hearts, I too shall walk glory-bound, a kingdom of love. I shall sing other songs, separate and singular, joy. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.